Ernest, what's up? Y'all know I'm big on doing your research, sharing your research, and giving credit to where you found the research. But I always get asked the same question. Where do I start with the research? And the answer is easy. It's our sponsor, Yahoo Finance. Whether I'm tracking the daily movement of my favorite companies, doing technical analysis with their easy-to-use charting platform, or checking balance sheets, Yahoo Finance makes something very complex simplified. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or you're looking for extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. You could actually securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including your 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors. And it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You heard me, yahoofinance.com. Don't wait, don't hesitate. I use it. You should go over there and start using it now. Earners, what's up? Look, I wanna give y'all a little peek behind the curtain of producing Earn Your Leisure. It's a lot more than just sitting down and chatting. It involves meticulous planning, recording, editing, and then promoting each episode to ensure it reaches all of you. And if you picked up any of our merch, then you know there's a whole extra layer of logistics from inventory management to shipping. Running a podcast is like running a small business. And speaking of business, I know many of you entrepreneurs are involved in e-commerce. You understand how crucial it is to streamline operations and cut costs wherever possible. That's why I want to talk to you about ShipStation, the multi-carrier shipping solution that integrates seamlessly with all your online sales channels. It's all about optimizing your shipping, connecting with expert partners, and freeing up more of your time to focus on scaling your business. Now let's talk about our experience with ShipStation. This tool has been a game changer for us, especially with automating routine tasks. Being able to manage everything from one dashboard and print shipping labels with just a click absolute lifesavers. Plus, the discounts we get on shipping costs are incredible. Honestly, it feels like we're saving thousands. And as our show and merch sales have grown, ShipStation's robust automation and reporting features have helped us keep up without missing a beat. For those of you who get overwhelmed by order volumes, ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard is a dream come true. You can import orders from any sales channel, apply shipping preferences automatically, and handle customer service issues right there. Not to mention the savings with up to 89% off carrier rates like UPS, DHL Express, and USPS. It's no wonder over 130,000 companies stick with ShipStation long-term. So, are you ready to turn your shipping challenges into growth opportunities? Head over to ShipStation.com and use promo code EARN for a free 60-day trial. Again, that's ShipStation.com, promo code EARN. Start streamlining your shipping and scaling your business today. Started working as a consultant for real estate developers, raising them capital. In one transaction where I'd raised all the 
debt and equity capital. I'm looking at the closing statement and there it was just me and I was a little fee. And I said, wait a minute, if I'm bringing all the money, I'm a smart guy. I want to be on that side of the table. That deal closed and I stuck with that developer for a couple of years for free just to learn because I understood that I could acquire a skill set that could make me a tremendous amount of wealth. When I see people today who approach me and say, hey man, I want to learn real estate development. Give me a job. That's not the right way, right? You want to acquire that skill set. And if you can offer something, bring something to the table and indoctrinate yourself into the real estate world, you want to do that because that knowledge you acquire is yours forever. My graduates from my school being Forbes, backdrop. Backdrop. <laughs> a mic drop. Backdrop. Backdrop. All right, guys, welcome back. EYL. Today is going to be a very special episode. We got Craig Livingston. So if you were at InvestFest, legendary InvestFest. Legendary performance. Um, you saw him on stage with Don Peebles. Yes. And moderated by a guy, MG the Mortgage Guy. Yes. And that was something that was a, a really dope highlight of InvestFest. Very educational. Um, and he works with Don. We'll talk about that later on, but that's the reason why... They were on stage. They were talking about the affirmation tower. They were talking about real estate development. They were talking about real estate investing, a variety of different things. Um, so this is something that's extremely important because we talk about real estate investing a lot, um, but it's always good to talk about real estate development mm -hmm. and on a larger scale um, because it's important not only to be motivated, but also to have the education to do it yeah. as well. I think we, we've only, we've had a, a, like a handful of developers on, uh, Brandon Rule was one, obviously we had Don, but to, we always say that thing, right? In order to, aspire, to be something, you have to see it. And so having these conversations, especially at this level, like this is like, we don't go higher than this, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So it's, it's going to be a, I feel like it's going to be a masterclass in a sense. Yeah. Managing partner for exact capital um, and has executed over 1.5 billion of financing for numerous transactions ranging from market rate to luxuries building a, a condominium uh, in Harlem. Yeah. Um, properties throughout the United States, working with Don Peebles on the Affirmation Tower, I believe, right? That's right. And, Which and is, Cheryl McKissick. And Cheryl McKissick. We can't leave yeah, out. We can't leave out the queen. Yeah, yeah. If you're not familiar with the Affirmation Tower, that is a project um, that once it's built will be the tallest building in New York City, correct? Western Hemisphere. Western Hemisphere. Western Hemisphere. Yep. And the only skyscraper with a majority black team. That's right. Right. And that's intentional. So so that's a historic landmark. And um, I know you guys have had some issues. We'll talk about that. But that's a historic landmark. Very important that we get that pushed through. So this is going to be a very high level conversation, to say the least. But first and foremost, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure to be here again, man. Great to see you guys. You guys have been real busy since <laughs> we saw each other in Atlanta. Yes. Yes. I'm extremely proud of everything you guys are doing. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you. So we're going to get into it. But first, let's get some background. How did you get your start in, in real estate, commercial real estate, and in real estate develop, development? So uh, let me give my background. I'll just do a little comprehensive review. So uh, I am the managing partner at Exact Capital Group. Uh, we are a vertically integrated real estate concern. We own, develop, and build for our own account. So um, I got into this because the last career that I had was actually in investment banking. And to be a uh, good real estate developer, you need to have great financial acumen, uh, great communication skills, and good presentation skills and, and uh, project management skills. So 
it was a natural progression out of uh, my last you know, job at Goldman Sachs into uh, becoming an entrepreneur. When I was in business school, everyone uh, that went, all the brothers who were my contemporaries, read a book called Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? Fun. Yeah. The Autobiography of Reginald Lewis. And that was really a roadmap on how to be an entrepreneur successfully at the highest level. And if you, for those who don't know Reginald Lewis, cop the book. It's a really good book. But it, you know, he was doing leverage buyouts in the 80s, like in the Michael Milken era, and there was practically no other black people doing it. So it stood out to me, definitely uh, made an imprint on me. And, I, and like you said, seeing it, right? I was able to see somebody else doing it. It encouraged me to take on business and, and entrepreneurship at the highest level. So uh, when I chose to leave investment banking, I wanted to uh, get into something that was transactional, deal motivated, and uh, it just happened to be real estate. Um, and you know, when I was still working, I bought a property, and um, I used. I was telling Matt when I spoke with him uh, through an FHA loan, right? mm. and so I put down my five percent. I remember sixty five hundred dollars, and. We, so we owned that property. Um, I bought it for, like I said, used the FHA loan, spent $6,500. And uh, it was a three family. And every month that I owned the property, it made between $800 and $1,000 of income. Uh, and so after six, seven months, I had my investment back. In 18 months, the realtor called me and said, there's an, an offer on your property. And the offer was for $100,000 more than when I bought the property for. And that was like when the first light bulb went off and I mm. got really into real estate. Cause I said, if I could do that, why the hell am I coming here every day? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, fast forward, I ended up buying uh, three more multifamily properties and cycled them out, sold them. But uh, when I left uh, banking, I thought, well, how can I do this business at scale? And uh, started working as a consultant for real estate developers, raising them capital. And uh, I was in one transaction where I'd raised all the debt and equity capital. And I'm looking at the closing statement and there it was just me and I was a little fee. And I said, wait a minute, if I'm bringing all the money, I'm a smart guy, I wanna be on that side of the table. So that deal closed and I stuck with that developer for a couple of years for free just to learn. Cause I understood that I could acquire a skill set that could make me a tremendous amount of wealth, right? So. When I see people today who approach me and say, hey, man, I want to learn real estate development. Give me a job. That's not the right way, right? You want to acquire that skill set. And if you can offer something, bring something to the table and indoctrinate yourself into the real estate world, you want to do that because with that knowledge you acquire is yours forever. And you can monetize that for your entire life. Yeah. So um, after I closed that transaction I was talking about and I wanted to be on the other side of the table about a year later, I locked up my first deal. And it was a church deal, a condo development in Harlem where a church owned property. And this is a common scenario in our communities. We have churches that have been in the urban environment for a long time, and they've weathered some bad times. And now that all this gentrification is happening, the land is becoming valuable, they want to monetize that land, uh, but they um, also want to, continue to exist there. So what a lot of churches do is they'll do deals with developers and well, like the church will say, Hey, you know, we need a new church facility. Uh, we need some cash and you know, the developer, you do what you want with the air rights. And there was that type of deal. And we brought that project to market 
in uh, December of 2009, right during the middle of the financial downturn. So for about a week, I thought that the project was going to be a rental. Uh, it turns out we hit the curve pretty well. We had a fantastic sellout, about $60 million in 16 months. And, um, you know, we were very happy to you know, repay our loan. We made some money. Uh, and that project went on to be very successful. All the people who bought, uh, you know, units there by 2014, all their units had doubled in value. So they were very happy with the investment. That's, that was my first project, which was a market rate development project. And the other piece of intellectual capital that I garnered through that was having weathered the financial downturn and all that economic turbulence. I thought, well, how could we do real estate development? and inoculate ourselves from the economic cycle, right? And the answer to that was affordable housing, and uh, which are public-private partnerships where um, we are building housing for tenants, uh, rental housing for tenants who are, uh, you know, you, you take your average school teacher married to a UPS driver who doesn't have four or $5,000 a month to pay for rent out here. And that's, that's our market, that's who we like to build for. And uh, those types of projects require the involvement and participation of governments who will provide certain non-conventional instruments like tax credits, taxes and bonds, subsidies, et cetera, that make the capital stack work so you can produce the housing. The, the, the dirty little secret about affordable housing is the income you generate from the rents don't pay enough income to subsidize building it. It's because government subsidizes it that it works. Yeah, there's, 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 a, there's a lot to unpack, but I want to go back just to the beginning for a sec because you made a, a very wise decision that most Americans don't make and you bought multifamily right away. Right. Um, because, you know, most times in, you know, in our communities, it's like we save enough money to buy the home that we can afford yeah. or the dream home that we think we can afford and we realize later that we can't. But you started with multifamily right away. Was that the strategy all along or you had been seeing people do that as, that, as a way of having passive income? Yeah, that was definitely my objective in that we wanted to, uh, you know, when you think about it, right, the fundamental equation is this. Most people buy into that American dream, right, where, you know, if you take a person, they go out and buy a home, they save all their money, they buy a single family home, they move into it. And for the next 30 years, most of the disposable income is going to pay that mortgage. That's it. But if they just did something a little bit differently, buy a couple of income generating assets first. Right. In the case I was talking about, uh, when I bought my first multifamily, I mean, that was making me between eight hundred and thousand dollars a month. So they call it a thousand dollars a month. Uh, if you're making sixty grand and you buy a multifamily house and you can make yourself an extra thousand dollars a month, you've given yourself a twenty percent raise, right? And you can do that repeatedly. And the more assets you have that are generating income for you, the easier it is to buy your next one and your next one, right? It's like getting off of that point of inertia. But if you choose to buy a single family home and move into it, I think, you know, it's not as lucrative and it's not the wealth generating uh, instrument that investment properties are. So let's, let's get into this real estate development conversation. For somebody that's looking to become a real estate developer right now, right? What advice would you, would you give them in order to, because I understand that it's not necessarily easy to get into the game, and it's all about relationships a lot of times. So what advice would you give to somebody that's looking to become a real estate developer? So the first thing is just learn the equation, 
right? Because you could do the equation uh, on a multifamily, a three-family, which most people can have a level of access to. But it's that same equation, that same, the same mechanics that go into doing a development deal. Granted, the variables change a little bit because if you get into development, you have to take on some different risks. Uh, but you're basically buying an asset. Uh, you're investing money in it. You're um, starting with a multifamily, like a three-family. You're going to learn things like how to do maintenance, right? When, when that toilet gets backed up, you're going to learn something about plumbing. You're going to learn something about electrical. And folks should not be scared to, you know, take on the challenge because everything you learn increases your knowledge base. And when you, when, the more knowledge you have, the more you're able to monetize your situation. So, um, you know, I would encourage folks to start small. So start with a, an operating property first, right? A multifamily. Learn the mechanics. Down the road, you may want to say, you know, I'm going to buy a brownstone or some other home that you can actually renovate and reposition. You, I mean, we, everyone watches HGTV and those kind of things. You see people doing flips. That's another aspect of, you know, uh, in real estate investing, real estate development that is achievable and it's accessible for most people. But if you do that, you learn how to, you know, contract with an electrician, how to get the plumbing redone in the house, how to, you know, put, get a new roof put on. All the things that you basically do when you develop, but you're learning it in, in a little bit of a safer scenario. And once you, um, you know, you go from uh, crawling to walking, you can run. Yeah. So that, that crawling process, I'm imagining now as you're interning, well, interning for free, right? You're, you're saying, can I help this firm? Take us through that process of what you're learning, what are you seeing, the negatives and positives of this space that you're now in, and to that moment where you now see your name at the bottom of the, <laughs> of the bed, and you're like, wait, my name next to be, next to be, needs to be next to the bigger figures on this. What's that process like for you? You mean going from just like starting to learn? Well, it's really just desire, man. Like, you know, really wanting to learn it. You think about um, what this opportunity represented for me was, you know, to actualize a dream and being an entrepreneur. And so I was intent on learning everything. So, uh, you know, why I stayed with that developer for, for free for two years, because I wanted to learn and I wanted to soak up everything like a sponge. So my background is in finance. I have two degrees in finance, a uh, bachelor's and a master's, and I worked as an investment banker. So I came to the table with really strong financial acumen. So the, um, you know, the math in real estate is simple math. And it's, you don't have to be an investment banker. You don't have to have an MBA to do it. It's simple math because the income is generated from people paying rent. You have operating expenses and you have cash flow. It's really a simple equation. Um, development goes a little bit deeper because you have to take something that's not generating any income and put it through a process where you're going to borrow some capital, uh, both debt and equity. You're going to hire an architect, maybe do some entitlement work so that you can have the right zoning or whatever you need to build. Then you're going to go through the process of actually constructing something. A little bit more risky, but once you get your wheels under you, you can do this. And so learning all of those different aspects, you know, the financing component, uh, being very uh, focused on project management. So making sure the, um, our plans were getting done on time and, you know, the legal documents that we needed around developments were also moving along and are structured properly. Um, there's a lot of engagement in what I do now with municipalities because when we're developing affordable housing, it can't be done without the participation and the support of government. 
And so there's a lot of what I think is undue bureaucracy in some markets uh, that you have to contend with, but then there are other markets that are easier to function in. And that is why as a company, we chose to expand out of New York City into several other markets where there really is tremendous demand for housing, both, you know, market rate, moderate income, and, you know, uh, affordable housing as well. So can you walk us through the development of, of a building? It could be in New York or out of New York. I know there's RFPs, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have to get the financing. Right. Then, like you said, you have to get the architect and you got to go through the permit process. So yeah, can you kind of walk us through right. step by so, step? Let, so let's start with a, a blank piece of dirt. Okay. So you have a piece of dirt, let's call it in Brooklyn. Okay. And it's in a neighborhood that's turning over and uh, is improving. And I, as an investor, believe, you know what? I can put a building on that piece of dirt, call it 50 units, and uh, make money, right? So the process is, first of all, I see that piece of dirt. The first thing I want to do is what's called a zoning analysis. I want to understand what's the size of a building I could put on there. Can I actually put 50 units? Is it 55 units? Is it 60? Is it 45? I don't know. So an architect would be engaged. They'd conduct a zoning analysis. And what it does is reads the zoning code and every municipality in the country has a zoning code. And it interprets the zoning code and it gives you right there in a two, three, four page report exactly what could be built, how high it could be, where the setbacks have to be, um, you know, how many dwelling units uh, can be in that building, the size of every dwelling unit. So all these very technical features are codified in a document. So you can take that zoning analysis now and now go build a financial model, right? And that financial model is going to say, look, I have these 50 units, some are studios, some are one bedrooms, some are two bedrooms, and they generate X amount of income, right? Um, that the amount of income they generate has to also um, be further reduced by the operating expense. So the superintendent has to clean the building or you know, service the residents. The porters have to take the garbage out and shovel the snow off the, off the front steps. You have to pay for electricity in the common areas. You have to pay your real estate taxes or whatever it is. So you do a financial model and you see you know, the revenue you can generate, the expenses associated against that project. And then what kicks out of that is what we call net operating income. That net operating income is what is used to service the debt, the mortgage on the building, right? So you can see just from a pro forma what NOI the building produces and that NOI will tell you how much debt you can raise. So um, you're, and you also want to have a, a project that of course can support the debt. So you know how much debt it could support. Now you look at, well, how much debt do I need to build it? And you're going to say, you know, a 50 unit building, um, when you become a little bit more seasoned, you, you kind of know what uh, construction costs are. But for folks who aren't, you can literally take your plans, talk to a builder, say, hey, I'm building this building. It's going to be block and plank, or it's going to be um, poured in place concrete, steel frame, whatever construction methodology your structural engineer recommends. And you get a cost, right? A, a cost projection for building the building. So that building, we'll just use some numbers, right? That, um, Let's say to acquire the land and to uh, build everything is going to be $10 million. And let's say at $10 million is uh, at 6% interest rate. So you know every month that's how much your mortgage payment has to be on that asset. So that NOI has to be in excess of that debt 
coverage, that, that debt number. We call that a debt service coverage ratio. So that um, DSCR probably needs to be minimum about 1.25. So meaning you want to have 125% of that mortgage number in your NOI. So you can comfortably cover the debt service. And then, then when you pay the debt service, the rest of it inures to cash flow. So when you're looking for, let's say that plot of dirt, what like, are you doing a market analysis to see like, all right, we're actually looking for a place to invest in this borough or in this city prior to it? Or are we, you know, looking at past investments that are going up in the neighborhood to say, all right, this is an opportunity for us to now create? No, that's actually a great question. So what you're really doing, you, you, you know, when you're looking at that particular opportunity, you, you're doing it. So you're looking at it because there's probably something else already going on in that neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. And what we do is what's called a comp study. So I can call a, a real estate broker and say, give me a comp study for this zip code. So they're going to say, Craig, I'll email you this report and it'll have um, you know, five buildings, 10 buildings that are renting up in and around the neighborhood. And it'll show me what the rents are in those buildings. So I can have a reasonable expectation as to what types of income are generated off that, off that, um, that asset. Now, in some markets uh, that we call transitional markets, you know, it's not so clear, but you're taking a bet because let's say something fantastic is going on in that market, like they're bringing in a new train, you know, train station or uh, they're building a new stadium. And there's a reason why I believe there's going to be a lot of demand for real estate in that area. So we will um, you know, make an analysis and do an investment based on that. But in my business, since we do affordable housing, here's the thing. Affordable housing is real estate. It's, all, it's actually, it's real estate, but it's really a hybrid. It's really structured finance, right? Because we are offering units to rent at below market rate. So it almost doesn't matter what the market is because the two bedroom is say 3000 in that market. I could bring it to I could bring it to market for like say 1600, 1800, tremendous discount to make it much more affordable. And the demand for affordable housing is insatiable. You, we cannot build enough of it. I, I have to tell y'all right now in 2022, almost 2023, we have a 7 million unit housing deficit in this country, 7 million units. That means we could build for the next 10 years. We'd have to build for the next 10 years across the country just to satisfy that demand. And guess what? In 10 years, we're going to find out there's even more demand that, that occurred. And just to quantify that, 7 million uh, units of housing is about two and a half, three trillion dollars of economic opportunity. That's why our community has got to get on real estate because, you know, you can get your feet in. Not all of it's going to be, you know, thousand unit portfolios that are built in public-private partnerships. A lot of it will be people who choose to, um, you know, buy a plot of land in the city or take a vacant land that the city is RFPing and you know build a three-family or four-family home on it. There's a lot of opportunity there. So, all right, let's talk about this. Um, there is a housing shortage yeah. in America, right? Um, so, what does that mean for the average person, and how does that affect the real estate market over the next five years? Well, that means that, you know, it's like anything else, supply and demand. The supply is low, the demand is high. So that's why rents go up so But why is there a housing shortage, though? Man, there's been so much politicization 
of housing and real estate and it's difficult to build. Like you look at some of the markets where it's most pronounced, uh, New York, California, there's this thing called NIMBY. You ever heard of NIMBY? Not in my backyard. People say, yeah, we need affordable housing, but don't build them. Don't build them on my street. Right. And so, um, what that does is it, it, it disturbs the real estate market for that particular city. And we just by and large have not built enough moderate and middle income or affordable housing. So, you know, millionaires don't have any problem. They could buy whatever they want to buy, right? Or live wherever they want to live. We're talking about the rank and file public, um, workers, you know, teachers, ambulance drivers, you know, um, sanitation workers, sanitation workers, the rank and file public who have good uh, jobs. They work hard, but there's been such an escalation in the cost of rents because of the sp- the supply and demand disruption mm-hmm. that the, these rents are off the table. I mean, if if four million units of housing hit the market tomorrow, all rents would drop. But it takes years and years to build it. That's why, you know, it, it, we have this condition because it, it's hard to just increase the supply quickly. You have to have an alignment of politics, of market forces like real estate, uh, um, um, excuse me, like uh, interest rates. You know, interest rates are out of control right now. So it makes it very hard to build. Sometimes you have construction costs going off the rails. Like you, everyone heard about, you know, uh, what was going on with supply chain Project, disruptions, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, last year. So you have all these things that can throw that equation off and make it hard to produce housing. So, you know, right now it's come to a critical point and, you know, particularly elected officials have to get off of the rubric where they want to, <clears throat> you know, almost politicize housing, make all real estate developers evil, all real estate is bad. We have a lot of that uh, narrative coming out of certain communities and certain cities, but it doesn't help to do anything because people still cannot find good housing. And the only way to get it is to build it, right? We have to upzone. A lot of communities don't want to go through rezonings and upzone. They say, oh, that, we don't want that high building here. Well, okay, that's your opinion, but we have people sleeping in shelters, right? Mm-hmm. We have people who really need uh, housing. And I firmly believe that housing security for most families is financial security. Because if people have a roof over their head, there's more money they have to dedicate to healthcare, to education, to other, you know, well-being of the family, taking care of the elderly, everything else the families have to deal with. But if 60, 70% of your income is used to pay rent, cuts out a lot of options, which you could do otherwise. Yeah, when, when you talk about upzoning, I, I was immediately thinking a city I used to work in, in New Rochelle, I'm, we're seeing a lot of towers go up yeah. there. And I'm wondering when, when you're building units and you're adding that to the portfolio, What's the allocation that has to be affordable housing? And, and, and your, obviously, your expertise in the field, are you seeing people just meeting the minimum or people exceeding the amount if there is a certain allocation you have to have? Well, first of all, let me say this. Uh, the mayor of New Rochelle and that administration has done it absolutely correctly. They have embraced real estate development and they've used market forces and capitalist forces and real estate developers to help bring that city into the modern era and the wave of development that there is impressive, right? Um, but in other areas, it's not so easy because you have a lot of differing opinions, a lot of you know just fights over what should be built, could be built. We don't want that tower here. Um, I think to answer your second question, generally, depending, different municipalities have different requirements about how much affordable housing should be built. And usually what happens is 
it's tied to some type of tax abatement or some type of government funding that will be, be provided to the project to build it. We had a scenario recently in Harlem, right? Where, you know, we're very active, we do a lot. And a city council person turned down a developer on 145th Street who bought land and only was required to do 20% affordable housing, but he wanted to upzone uh, the, the project and, and do 900 units. He went as far as 50% affordable housing. Wow. She still voted it down. Why? To, wow. Politics. Bro. So you think about it, that's the, that's the wrong move, right? I mean, that's 450 families who are not going to have clean, decent, energy efficient, affordable housing for themselves, right? It's, a, it's an absolute loss, but we see too much of that these days. So let me ask you this. Well, two questions. How do real estate developers get paid? Last. <laughs> One word answer. <laughs> so what I mean by but that, you get paid like twice though, right? Well, no, real estate developers take all the risks. So what we do? What do you mean twice? So you get all right. Well, you can explain it better than me, obviously. But from my understanding, you um, you get a part of the development fee. Yes. Right. And then you, ha if you have equity in it, then you can get that as some level of compensation as well. Right. So the equity, the equity that you invest would just be returned to you, right? The equity is, so when you do a project, let's say, you know, like when you buy a house, right? You, you know, you go to the bank and the bank says, okay, um, uh, you know, I want to buy this house. They'll say, okay, Mr. Livingston, you know, you have to put down 20%. That's your equity. Same thing when you do a development deal, the bank isn't going to give you hundred percent of the deal. You have to bring some equity. Usually depending on how large the project is, you get into a scenario where the equity is coming from a third party investor, a limited partner, which is usually a real estate private equity fund. It could be an insurance company or some just investor that has a lot of capital and they have to invest it because they need to generate returns on their capital to pay pensioners or to pay out insurance claims or whatever it is. Uh, so the equity gets returned, but to, to answer your question specifically, a real estate developer would get fees, right? So you get a developer fee. Uh, there, you could get distributions based off of refinancing the project because let's say, you know, like um, you have a project, you do it after 10 years or whatever, rents go up. You have one level of debt. You've been paying down that mortgage. You could refinance, put a new mortgage on, take some cash capital out. But, but uh, more regularly, what happens is once you put the building into service, every month there's cash flow. Right. Remember, remember NOI, you have your NOI, you pay your debt and what remains is cash flow that can be distributed to partners. So, okay. Now, let me ask you this. We're in New York City. Rent prices have gone up right. some cases, a hundred percent. And since COVID, um, I think it's the most expensive rent right now in the country. Um, how is this sustainable and what is the solution? Or is there any solution or will rents just continue just to go? Well, no, that's, that's not sustainable. And what, what you saw happen there was a situation where um, there, a couple of things happened. There'd been a lot of pressures on operating expenses for years. If you look at the curve of inflation, I mean, and, and how insurance, how oil, how labor, all the inputs to operate a building have gone up tremendously. So think about this, right? You've heard of uh, the fight for 15, okay? So we wanted to pay workers more. So this bill came out of the state legislature to say, you know, 
we're going to pay everybody $15 an hour. And I believe it was a needed bill and we should have done it. It was the right thing to do. But when you pay people $15 an hour, we took the labor, the minimum wage from $7 or whatever, was dollars $8, whatever, to 15 in two years. You doubled the cost of labor everywhere. Uh, then insurance goes up 30% a year. You have, um, you know, uh, all your supplies, uh, water, gas, everything goes up so much. So what happened with those big rent increases is there was an opportunity, again, very short, tight supply, and folks were out of the city for a while. Everyone came flooding back at one point in time. And just the market demands uh, caused, you know, just the economic equation to ensue supply and demand. The, the, you know, demand was strong, supply was low, rents went up. That's not sustainable. You'll never see 100% year over year or 30% year over year rent increases. What compounded it more in my world is that uh, when you own affordable housing assets like I do, particularly in New York City, those rents are governed by the RGB, the Rent Guidelines Board. So they set the rent increases on rent-stabilized units every year. And again, the politicization of real estate, those RGB increases had been artificially low for for like a, throughout almost like the whole de Blasio administration. And they were lagging um, the increase in cost of operating buildings. So, you know, there was a RGB increase this past year, I think of uh, earlier this year, like four or 6%. And people were up in arms, but it still didn't even really um, catch up with what, you know, inflation and operating costs had, had uh, you know, demonstrated over the past few years. So you're, you're going to see, you know, and so the, I mean, what I'm doing is making differentiation between what happens in the regulated world, like regulated real estate and unregulated real estate. Unregulated real estate is where you had those huge dramatic increases. Regulated real estate is not going to, you're not going to see those types of rent increases year over year. You know, one of the things around real estate is the education around it. And so most people think they can be an agent or they can be a realtor or obviously in your case, a developer. But just doing the research on it, you realize there's so many other things yeah. that could be involved. And obviously what you're doing now, I mean, I wrote down a list of things and you can enlighten me. I wonder what you see on the landscape looking forward for the space, architects, accountants, attorneys, plumbers, electricians, masons, painters, carpenters, all these opportunities we're missing the opportunity to, to be involved in, in the process. What, what do you think we need to do to enlighten the education around it? No, I mean, that's a great point you're bringing up because um, like I just talked about, you know, building um, 7 million units. It's a two and a half to $3 trillion opportunity. And that's not all going to developers, right? You have architects and engineers and masons and plumbers and accountants and you know, attorneys and so many people involved in and around real estate. and so. There are a lot of different career paths that are available. We talk about like when we do Affirmation Tower and other projects that we do, you know, there's power in ownership. So as a developer, what we do is we are intentional about making sure we're spending money with minority and women-owned companies. Um, our Harlem project, the Victoria Tower, that is operational now on 125th Street next to the Apollo. Mm -hmm. I mean, in that project alone, we spent $35 million contracts with minority and women-owned companies. And in Affirmation Tower, which is going to be a um, $2.5 billion project, we're going to spend over a billion dollars with minority and women-owned companies. But again, that's because you have ownership that looks like me 
making damn sure that we're doing it. We're not looking to, you know, figure out how to game the system and not do it, get the credit, you know, give it to somebody's wife who started a company, that, none of that nonsense. We were very intentional about making sure that the economic multiplier exists in our community. So um, let's talk about this Harlem Hotel. It's going to be the first luxury hotel yeah. in Harlem. Yeah, we're really proud of it, man. So uh, it'll be opening up in February, and it'll be a renaissance by Marriott. So this is the first full-service hotel in Harlem in 80 years. Where's, where's it going to be? Right on 125th Street. Oh, right. That's the Victorian. The, the Victoria, Victorian. Yeah, the Victoria Tower. So yeah. what it is is um, back in the day, you had Harlem's Opera Row, and there were four performance halls. You had the Apollo the Victoria, the Alhambra, and the Harlem Opera House. Uh, only the Apollo is really functional right now as it, as it was originally built. But we uh, got involved in this project uh, years ago, and it was an adaptive reuse. So we've kept some of the original historical features, like the facade, the marquee, the blade. When you go into the development, you know, when you walk in off of 125th Street, you're walking into the original 1917 lobby. We hired um, <clears throat> historical preservation architects and we re restored it to the T perfectly. And then um, the rest of it is all brand new. So we have two 27-story towers. Uh, the tower on 126th Street is a residential rental building that was done in a 50-30-20 configuration. So there's 50% market rate, 30% low income, 20% middle income. And we did that intentionally to make sure we could create opportunity for people from all over the income spectrum to live there, right? And so it wasn't just going to be a bunch of, you know, folks paying four or $5,000, $6,000 a month for rent, but we have affordable housing tenants paying a fraction of that living there and enjoying the same amenities everyone else is enjoying. Then within the hotel, uh, there is a um, uh, 210 rooms. We have a fantastic... Uh, lounge bar lobby it's amazing definitely you guys might want to film there sometime <laughs> uh, easy that's too easy <laughs> yeah we have we have a, a ballroom because we want to create an opportunity for you know institutions from our community in harlem to be able to have events there so you know um world-class ballroom and then on the first well before i get there we also created a cultural arts facility with two black box theaters so there's a 99-seat theater and a 199-seat theater that will be occupied and operated by the Apollo Theater well. So they'll be doing programming and uh, creating um, arts programming from other local uh, groups in the community who can't you know, afford to do it on Broadway because it gets prohibitively expensive, but they could do it here. And then we have you know, a couple of retailers, but you know, it's a... Uh, Long time coming. We're happy to be, you know, at the end and putting it into production. Yeah, so we, we got the hotel in Harlem, but there's also affordable housing that's, that's going on in Harlem. I know yeah. 140th, is, there's a project in 115th. Let's talk about the importance of, I got almost restoring that 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 feeling from the Harlem Renaissance. You, you, you talked yeah. about the four pillars that were there, but there's like a resurgence and it's happening, obviously, yeah. with you guys. I mean, look, there's a lot. So let me, so here's a dirty little secret. Harlem is no longer majority black, right? So What, what is it? Majority what? It's not majority black. I mean, you have, it's a big, there's a big uh, Asian population, big Latino population, big white population. But Do you know the numbers or? Uh, I don't, but we can get them to you. But you, but you look at, um, 
What we should be doing is preserving our cultural institutions. And Harlem is a cultural institution. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we've done, you've mentioned 140th Street. So we own some property on 140th Street and 150th Street. So we're rebuilding uh, on those two vacant lots. We're putting up two affordable condominiums. So it's home ownership where we want folks from the community to be able to buy units in the community at affordable prices. So you're talking about like a three-bedroom condo in Harlem for like $300,000, right? Unheard of. But we could do that because of the participation and the support of, you know, the Department of Housing Preservation Development, you know, New York City's housing agency and um, some other funding that came from the state. But we need a lot more of that. That we need to have home ownership opportunities in Brooklyn, you know, uh, in in the Bronx, in Harlem, a lot more of it. And so I think this city council and this uh, legislature and the assembly and the Senate has woken up to that and have, has created financial resources to go into funding that type of development. Because we, you know, we, we were asleep for a long time while Harlem was changing over. Yeah. So let me ask you this, because you're still a bit. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. In your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive. And that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Business, man, and you're in it to make money, right? So when you're doing these projects and 50% of the housing is going to low or middle income, mm-hmm. or you just talked about where you can buy and it's 
based off of your income. So how are you making money off of this? The the city gives you subsidies to subsidize the price. So like if somebody should be paying four thousand, but they're only paying one thousand, is the city subsidizing that three thousand dollars? Absolutely. So what'll happen is uh, there's two types of subsidies: capital subsidy and there's rental subsidy. So uh, so capital subsidy works like this. Like, you know, we're doing a development and it costs 10 million to do the development, right? Uh, but that development can only support 6 million of uh, debt or 6 million of capital because of the depressed costs. The city's going to put in the additional subsidy. It's a very simplistic way to look at it, but that's kind of how it works. And how we get paid is when you create that, uh, that budget, our fee is part of the budget. So it's like it's right, it's baked right in. So that, so it's like a building costs ten million, you have six million. The city will put the other four million in right. for you, but for them putting four million in for you, they're gonna say we need thirty percent of right. the market rate. So then the math it works out where it's kind of like an even exchange almost. That's right, 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 right. They they subsidize. The city has to subsidize the uh, building and the operations of affordable housing because otherwise it wouldn't work. What's the, what's, how much do you need to have an affordable housing building? Like 20%, 30%, yeah, like a percentage? I mean, we do some, we have a building that we're bringing to market right now in the Bronx up on Union Avenue. It's a 95 unit uh, building. It's 100% affordable. But that was done from the, from the genesis with the city, with the intention of doing an affordable housing building. And by the way, that's also uh, a joint venture with the church where we did a deal with the church. They own the land mm-hmm. and they had aspirations. I mean, it's a really good, really nice church. They had aspirations to um, stay there. They wanted a new church facility. And, uh, you know, a lot of their members have passed away or retired, moved away, and the, the congregation uh, dwindled. So when we were introduced to them, we had an idea, listen, let's work out an affordable housing deal. We brought them into the partnership where they are 30% owner as well. Uh, and they get a new church facility. But all that was done under one budget and that includes a developer fee. So we're able to do, you know, do good, help this church, create affordable housing, but we make money by doing it too. That literally is what's happened to my church in New Rochelle. Right. We're going to be on the the bottom floor. It'll be retail space, but they, uh, you know, there's going to be a tower above it. Right. You said something about, yeah, we were asleep for a while, but now we need to be woke. And part of it is seeing people like you, but we need to see more people like you. And I know you're on uh, the the board uh, for the New York real estate uh NIREC. Yeah, NIREC. Right. Yeah. So can you talk about your role and the importance that that, that organization plays in that, that process of developing more developers that look like us? Yeah, I mean, so NIREC is the New York Real Estate Chamber. It is the leading advocacy group for all the diverse developers in New York State. So uh, if you're, you know, anyone doing any project of scale and note that's a black or brown developer or female developer is a, is a member of this organization. And... um you know, 30 years ago, you wouldn't see anybody like us doing real estate, right? We just, it was just been a, a very undiverse industry, no diversity. And uh, so I'm on the board. I'm actually chairman of the board. Cheryl McKissick is a board member with me. Don Peebles is a board member with me. But we have a bunch of other board members uh, and developers that are for-profit and not-for-profits, but we all work towards the same thing, to increase access to economic opportunity and capital for uh, diverse developers. And we've been making a lot of noise. We've been, I think, achieving a lot of success. We are looking to recruit and bring as many folks who are interested in real estate development into the fold as possible because the knowledge that we have has to be shared. It's the only way we're gonna grow our ranks, right? And 
I like to borrow a, you know, rubric from our Jewish brothers and sisters. I see so much collaboration in synagogues. You go to any synagogue, you're gonna see five or 10 businessmen who work together. Uh, and we try to do the same thing. Don Peebles always says, you know, when he sees another black developer, he doesn't see a competitor. He sees a potential partner. And that's how, you know, we look at it at NIREC. We are doing a lot of deals uh, that are larger because we collaborate with each other, like Affirmation Tower. Uh, you know, the Peebles organization, my company, um, the Bolstero uh, in Atlanta and 3rd and Urban won an RFP last month to develop a huge site next to Microsoft's 90-acre campus, right? It's, it's going to be, you know, 1.2 million square feet that we'll develop, which will consist of 495 units of housing, um, an office building, and uh, a hotel. That's going to be done right at the Bankhead train station. We're going to build a platform over this train In Atlanta? Station. In Atlanta, go vertical. Yeah. I mean, we're getting busy in Atlanta anyway. We love that market. We want to do as much as possible. It's a growing market. It's flourishing. The government is super supportive of uh, these types of public-private partnerships. They're aware of developing assets uh, in an economically diverse way so that we could create some affordable housing in, in combination with commercial and market rate development. just makes a lot of sense. So collaborating together allowed us to win that. And there's, we have a lot of instances, even amongst other NIREC members, where you know, other members have collaborated or winning there's a there's a you know group on a great project up in Boston um, associated with a train station not not too long ago. They're winning deals with NYCHA, the New York City Housing Authority, where we have our members taking down you know five, six, seven, eight hundred units that they're going to renovate and put back into service and you know help improve the overall um, physical condition of those those buildings. So they've been so dilapidated for so long. But again, this is all being done through collaboration. So. We want to work with as many uh, folks who are interested in real estate development, and we, we welcome people into the fold, and you know, we want to grow our ranks. It sounds like you have almost, right, if you're talking about NIRAC, that's obviously here in New York, but working in Boston, having development in Atlanta, right. you're working with other municipalities domestically. Is there one, or is there thoughts of this creating one that can create on a national level? We, we'd love to, man. I mean, I think when you look at what's happening, I, again, that... 7 million unit housing opportunity, right? I would like to see a lot of minorities and women take advantage of it, right, nationally. So I look at NIREC as being a model of what can happen through collaboration. There's also a lot of um, advocacy that we do with elected officials, right? We have to spend a lot of time with not only elected officials, but government agencies on the state, federal sometimes, and city level, trying to make sure economic opportunity is awarded fairly because for a long time, you know, we, we were persona non grata. Mm -hmm. uh, there was nothing coming to us. And it's a shame because you have in, in most urban environments in most cities around the country, no mayor gets elected without the black vote. So if we're going to put people in office. We need to make sure we're getting a piece of that economic pie. So we'd love to take NIREC or an organization like NIREC nationally and have the same type of uh, contract and the same type of uh, mechanisms we use here replicated around the country. So what's the deal with the Affirmation Tower? Last time we spoke to Don, I know it was some issues, but I think there's been even more issues, right? Yeah. Since then, so what's the what's the latest update well, yeah. for the Affirmation Tower? And well, explain it to Affirmation Tower for anybody that might not be. So Affirmation Tower is a project that was conceived by Don Peebles 
uh, probably, you know, year and a half ago, maybe a little bit longer, in response to an RFP issued by New York State's economic development agency called ESD, Empire State Development. And it leverages Site K. And say, say, explain what an RFP is. An RFP is a request for proposal. So when a government wants to do something, uh, they, want, they have to spend some money on a, on a project or they want to develop a site, they will put it out to the public and ask for requests for proposals of like, how would you develop it? And so uh, Don came up with an idea leveraging a concept that he thought of a while ago called af- affirmative development, which is proactively doing development in an inclusive way and affirming that uh, folks like me and him and Cheryl and others can participate in real estate development at the highest levels. So we put together an RFP to build, you know, one of the tallest buildings in the world, definitely the tallest in the Western hemisphere uh, by floor height, but we our spire is below the spire of uh, the world. Uh, world trade. World trade, the, world, the Freedom Tower, because, you know, what it represents. Mm-hmm. But the idea is, you know, in 2022, we should not be talking about this as a first, right? Um, there's been no skyscraper uh, in New York City built by black folks or owned by black folks. We've, we've probably toiled on it and spent a lot of time working, laboring, but not owning and not doing it as a developer. So it's time, you know, to have that um, barrier broken. And what we're looking to do there is to build, uh, like I said, the tallest power in the Western Hemisphere. We're going to put the offices of the NAACP in there, a civil rights museum as well. Uh, There would be all kinds of great features of ice rink on the, on the roof. There'd be a public atriums and, you know, we want young black and brown children to be able to come to New York city and point to that and say, Hey, you know, somebody looks like me and my father built that project. Right. Because like I started by talking about Reginald Lewis, right. And what that inspired in my life. We, We need to inspire the lives of these next generations. And they need to understand that they could do it too. So, but what's the issues right now? But it was political, issues are some political issues. Yeah, political. I mean, the, the um, Governor Hochul rescinded the RFP uh, when she. Why did she do that? I, I'm not really clear. I, I think it was a bad move. I don't think it, it was wise at all because, um, you know, the, what, what the reason she said was um, they wanted to rescind the RFP to uh, re-examine it so that it could align closer to her priorities, whatever that means. It was previously approved by Governor Cuomo. It, w- it wasn't approved. It was issued by issued, Governor okay. Cuomo, and we were doing fantastically well. Okay. I think the public response to the project was amazing. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times in uh, Democratic strategists underestimate how important economic development and economic empowerment and wealth generation is to our community, right? They tend to want to dangle the same old poverty politics in front of us that we've experienced for the past 50 years that haven't gotten us anywhere, right? I mean, you Government programs. Government programs, you know, social programs. You look at, you know, you, there's been, a, there's tons and, there's billions and billions of dollars spent just in this city, in this state, every single year on social programs. And we're not moving the needle. But if we spend half of that in economic development and, and investing in black companies, I guarantee the, the needle will move. Let's talk about the collaboration. Obviously, we spoke about Don working with Cheryl McKisnick um, on this project together. I feel like this is the the Avengers of real estate for our community, <laughs> for sure. What's that been like? How did you all come together to say, all right, this is what we're, I'm bringing, this is what your team's bringing, 
here's what we're going to bring. Let's combine efforts and build something that's going to be legendary and historic. Yeah, again, I have to compliment Don for his vision of being inclusive and collaborative and setting a standard of how we should be doing business together, right? And, you know, Don and Cheryl had known each other for a long time, going back to her days, I think, at Howard, when uh, they used to hang out and party and everything. And, you know, we knew each other from our work together at NIREC. And, you know, um, I joined the board and we got along very well. And we have our own momentum in what we do. We're, you know, very, very active and very efficient in the capital markets. And so we were able to bring that acumen to the project in terms of raising capital and, and project management and the like. But um, the, I, the, a, the opportunity to collaborate with them, I mean, Don is the most successful African-American real estate developer in the country, right? So uh, he brings a whole different level of uh, this business and a whole different level uh, of development to us because we would not have been trying to build a skyscraper absent being invited into this project. Mm -hmm. And Cheryl is, you know, she is the owner of the oldest black construction company in the country, started by her fifth generation grandfathers who were slaves. I mean, you can't have a better story than that. So you have this team to come together and to put together what should be a barrier-breaking project uh, and for us to change the skyline of New York City and to say it was done by a black team is an amazing opportunity. So we, we remain vigilant. And, you know, we talk about Affirmation Tower all the time. I think Don just got a Grio Award couple of days ago, which is, you know, big you know, shout out to Don. Um, and, you know, we were looking for the RFP to be reissued. Now that Governor Hochul has been reelected, uh, that should be happening soon. And when it is reissued, we'll be all over it. You know, we're, we are determined to win it. So that's, um, the city owns the land? The state. The state owns the land. Yeah. And, okay. And it's right in, it's right in, uh, you know, uh, Hudson Yards, right? So Javit, the, the site K is right across the street from Hudson Yards. So you think about it, right? They gave a tremendous amount of land to relate it and then gave them billions of dollars in subsidy. Now they're talking about, you know, giving 18 million square feet of land in, around Penn Station to Vernado, right? We just want the opportunity to buy site K so we could do, um, Affirmation Tower, and we're not even looking for public subsidy. So the, since the city owns the land, will they have ownership of the land, or will you buy the land from the city? We'll do like a uh, like a 100-year ground lease, which is basically the same as buying it. What, what does that mean? A ground lease? So a ground lease is like, you know, um, we, have the, we, we pay a ground lease rent on an annual basis, but we get to own and operate the improvements on the land for that 100 years. So we'll build, you know, uh, so you're leasing the land for a hundred years. Yeah. So so the city still owns it. The, right. The but state you, you the have, state would own it. You have control over. We it. have control over. We just pay the rent. So the thing about this. So you you guys have spent time down on Wall Street, right? So there's a little church down there on Broadway, Trinity Church. Mm -hmm. Trinity Church owns a ton of the land that those skyscrapers are built on. They've owned it for hundreds of years. They just lease it to different developers and and financial institutions who build. Uh, what they build, and they're just collecting ground lease rent. It's a really good business model. So, who owns most of the land in New York City? Like the land? No, not 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 a lot of land is ground leased. Most land is owned fee simple. But sometimes folks will choose to structure ground leases for whatever reason. If you're in a really, you know, high demand area that's super valuable, why sell it? You could ground lease it, and a hundred years from now, 
your heirs could still be collecting ground lease rent. Yeah, that is a great business. So most skyscrapers that are being built, the developers don't own that. No, land. not most, but there's just that that's just been the model that I said Trinity okay. Church did. But some some do. Some do. Yeah. And they just buy whoever owned it previously, they would sell them the land as part of the deal. Right? Or like if somebody's building a skyscraper in yeah. Manhattan. They're buying the land most of the time? You, most of the time. The more common execution is people just buy the dirt, right? From whoever owns it. From whoever maybe. owns it. In some, some instances, um, maybe a family, a trust, whatever, they don't want to sell it. So let's say we'll lease it, just collect income. So yeah. that church, Trinity Church, you said owns a lot of land in Wall Street area? Yeah. And how long have they had that land? Since, I mean, like... When there was no buildings there? Yeah, it was, when it was farm, it was dirt. When they just took it from the Native dirt. Americans? <laughs> Pretty yeah. much, basically. Back to New Amsterdam, right? I mean, that's what, that's what happened. Right? <laughs> this is what I, mean, I don't know. I don't know the source of how they acquired it. I mean, not like it. the church took it. Yeah. They might have. Who knows? Yeah. But I'm just saying. Eventually, uh, that's what happened, right? Yeah. Like it was here. They got control and of it, and it's, they got right. control over they it, it, and then they just kind of ciphered it off to whoever the new landowner was. Right. But they didn't. They didn't own it originally. No, nah. somebody. Like, yeah, because right. back in the you know when the Indians were here, they didn't believe in. Ownership of land. Right. It's everybody's land. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. And, but now it's worth more money than anything else in the world. It's worth a lot. A whole lot. A whole lot. Uh, Barry Park. Yeah. I, I wonder now, like, going through this process, obviously seeing the politics of, 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 of the space, does it discourage you or are we looking, are you now looking as a firm, right? Where else are we going to make a statement, right? Like, New York City is prime because of what it means to the country's financial capital of the world, but... Are there other places where we're looking to make yeah. just as much of an impact with some of the developments that you, you have in mind? So, you know, there's only one New York City, right? right? And I've lived through two world coming to an end scenario. 9-11, the financial collapse, well now three, COVID. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, uh, I think we're still bouncing back from COVID. There's been some other issues that are creating headwinds for us, like, th like the crime and some other stuff. But um, with 9-11, and the financial collapse, I mean, New York City bounced back. It's super resilient. There's one New York City. It's a global uh, city. And I wouldn't bet against New York ever. However, what we're doing is we're diversifying as a company. And we love some markets in the Southeast and out West and the Midwest. So uh, we're really heavy in Atlanta. I mean, Georgia is amazing what's going on there. We just, yeah. you know, we, we want to continue to invest and help that city transition and grow. Uh, we're doing uh, stuff in Columbia, South Carolina. We're in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Um, we, we did deals in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. There's a lot of uh, opportunity everywhere. And by the way, not every type of deal is right for every type of market. You have to do the right deal in that market, right? So, you know, we wouldn't build Affirmation Tower in, in, in Indianapolis, Indiana. It's not the right market, but it's the, it's the right uh, project for New York City. So we're doing uh, a lot of things. And, you know, our number one market right now for investment going forward is Atlanta. Hmm. Why are you so bullish on Atlanta? It has all the right demographics. So, you know, population growth. Um, a lot of companies are moving there. When you look at the, the, um, the amount of new job creation, uh, a lot of companies want to relocate out of the Northeast, out of California. These heavy tax states, uh, these heavy uh, 
bureaucratic states, it's so much easier to function in some of these other markets. Like, you know, there's a reason why Elon Musk moved Tesla to Texas, mm -hmm. right? There's a reason why, you know, GE left Connecticut and went to Boston. They're, you know, companies have options they can choose, but the Southeast is really uh, just a great market. It's created the right type of atmosphere. You have good ed educational institutions. Uh, you have great infrastructure, a government that's supportive of development and understands the importance of doing it the right way and is working collaboratively with the business community to forge the right type of development. I think, you know, everything that um, Mayor Dickens is doing in Atlanta is 100% spot on. He's, he's doing the right thing. So um, the Affirmation Tower, what's the financing for that? Like, how does that look? Oh, man, that's about... Uh, I haven't looked at it in a minute. Well, you know, we've, I'm sure we have to reprice everything at this point because the escalation in construction costs. But that was a project that's going to be uh, $1.6 billion. So $1.6 billion. And who are you getting the money from? Private equity firm? Right. So we'd have to raise a limited partner, LP equity, from investment funds or, you know, uh, insurance companies, you name it. But this that's an institutional asset where you're going to generate, you know, that, I mean, that equity check is $600 million. How much money do you need to raise? So we'd have to raise, I mean, well, none of us are rolling around with $1.6 in the pocket. So we're going to raise all of it. So oh, you need to raise all of it? We're going to raise all of it. So, I mean, there's, a, there's an amount of GP capital that has to go into so it. So like Fidelity, I write you a check for $500 million. Yeah, you know somebody Fidelity? I'm just saying hypothetically. <laughs> yeah. Hypothetically, right? Yeah, That's yeah. how, so. Right. So we'd have, so you'd have the capital stack would be like a billion in debt and that could come from, and we've had, I don't want to say it here, but we've had uh, interest from some of the largest lenders in the world and some of the largest uh, investors in the world too. And then from them, obviously like a bank, they get a return on their investment. Right. So, you to check. so the debt is, you know, you just pay interest on the debt, right? So we get a billion dollars in debt. Uh, You'll be paying your, 6% interest rate on that, okay, until it's repaid. Um, and it gets repaid. The construction loan gets taken out with PERM financing when the when the project is done. But What's the PERM refinance? PERM finance. So you have construction financing, which is what we use to build it, right? It's just a construction loan. So it's, here's, you know, a billion dollars, 6%. So we're paying them $60 million a year on the capital. Uh, when you get the project finished, we put permanent financing on it. So like a 10-year perm loan that amortize, has some amortization features and we're just, you know, we're still making monthly payments, but those payments are really coming out of uh, the operations of the building versus being financed as part of the construction loan. So for, even from the construction standpoint, I'm looking at, at the trio of you guys, obviously you, um, Cheryl, and Don. The construction piece, is, is that where you lean on her for the expertise? Absolutely. All right, yeah, because I'm like, we combine the forces, that's her expertise. Absolutely. So McKissick will be in charge of the construction right. as far as all those loans. They'll be knocking that out. Right. But as far as all the other opportunities inside there where we talked about, are we looking to hire people that look like us to fulfill those roles? 100%. So our commitment is to spend a billion dollars uh, with minority and, and women-owned companies. So, um, okay. Now... This is going to be office space? It would be office and hotel. A hotel? Oh. Yeah. So office, like, you know, we probably have a life science user, which is a big growing area. Um, and some, two hotels, actually. What hotels? Uh, we haven't chosen them yet, but we have, you know, some, we have a 
idea of the type of hotel. So we do like a full service hotel and then maybe by uh, a, 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 what we call like a value hotel. What is a full service hotel? Something like, you know, the Four Seasons or, uh, you know, where you have all of the, you know, you have all the amenities, you have um, a certain level of um, operation and just, you know, standard in terms of, um, you know, concierge and spas and other things that are available. Who, who would fit in the category of value hotels? Something like a, uh, like a, I'm not saying we're going to do this would be the hotel we yeah. use, but something like a like a pod hotel or some like the smaller hotels have some smaller rooms, that like are, boutique hotels. Well, smaller rooms, but just not as many Amenity? amenities. Okay, okay. Smaller rooms, less amenities, but also lower cost. So like no restaurant. They don't have a restaurant. Right. There. Right. There's no like 24 hour room service. Right. So that's that's what we call full service hotel. You have restaurants, room service, concierge service, spas, those types. Of yeah. So for so, office space, are you concerned that the office space might be an issue going forward into the future when people might not be working from offices? No, because I, so I think, you know, um, what happens is that there's always a new user. One. Two, um, when you look at offices, they're not all the same. It's like, you know, they're not monolithic. You have buildings like one Vanderbilt that's leasing up at incredible record-setting numbers. But there's buildings, you know, 20 blocks away that can't get leased up that have vacant. And if you're building, you know, the, the, the whole movement with ESG right now is that companies really want to be in buildings that are green, that have the right type of environmental footprint, that have been built a certain way and are responsive to what shareholders and their you know, customers are demanding that they be responsible corporate citizens. So to be able to offer, you know, Fortune 500 companies the opportunity to, you know, take space in a remarkable new tower like uh, Affirmation Tower that has those types of features, you know, we've seen it work repeatedly, but it's because we're building the right type of building, not just, you know, the old, you know, stale type of skyscrapers that have been built or office buildings that have been sitting there that, you know, just aren't interesting to, you know, yeah, the, the architecture choices. The architecture looks incredible. Yeah. Um, and you said that, you know, you have to reassess, obviously, with supply chain issues and construction costs changing, I imagine now, like, what would be the timeline to complete a project by estimate? What do you, what do you, what do you think? So we would, would spend, uh, once awarded, we we're going to spend about a year, maybe 15, 18 months in pre-development, and then we're going to take, you know, three years to build it. Pretty quick. Yeah. Are, are you finding a new affinity for skyscrapers? Obviously, you were doing affordable housing. This is obviously something that you said Don had a vision for. Mm -hmm. Is that something now that you're looking like, you know, we, I yeah. could do more of this? Well, you know what? Uh, our firm is really multi-strategy. So we have our uh, our business models where we do probably 70% of what we do is affordable housing, but we do other things. We we do hotels. Uh, we, um, we do market rate projects. We do condos, right? So how our business model has morphed is we're doing a lot more placemaking now. So less individual buildings. We still have a pipeline of buildings that we're completing, but we're doing less of that and more placemaking, like what you see in MARTA in Atlanta, where you know there's a whole opportunity to develop um, a large tract of land, but to do it where there's office, there's hospitality, uh, there's housing, mixed income housing, and it's also adjacent to public transportation. So you, it's like a destination and it's like a live, work, play type 
community. We really like that uh, model a lot more. And ahead of us, you know, we're going to be doing deals that look like that, which are much larger in size. So we'll have the luxury of doing fewer of them and still putting a lot of uh, capital to work. So just came back from Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And uh, the architecture out there is amazing. All modern buildings, but um, they're very, it's like art as well. Right. When in New York, I don't really see that level of inspiration. It's not as inspirational with the architectural design of the landscape where they have like the sailboat building, even right. the Burj Khalifa, like how it's designed, the colors on it. Is, is, so I say that to say, there's like, when I look at the architecture, it's art as well, right? Well, that would make sense because the architecture is some level of art in yeah. there. But I don't see that here. So when you're developing your buildings, do you have that level of art? Or is that something that you can't do because the city puts limitations on it? Why don't we see that same level of creativity they that, they here? That one weird building. Than what, we, than what we see over there. Yeah. Well, you know, historically, architecture has been very artistic. If you look at some of those older buildings like the Baroque style or Renaissance revival or some of the, you know, French colonials, you have all this, um, you know, ornate um, features that are in buildings, you know, a lot of sculpting, gorgiles, all those kind of things. It used to be very artistic. I just think from a design aesthetic, we've gone away from it, unfortunately. Just and, as a culture? As a culture, yeah. And and the other thing about when you're talking about the Middle East and some of those other areas, I mean, they can, you have those types, I mean, like Dubai, right? That's a city that came up out of the sand because they had a vision and they were like, listen, we have a blank canvas. We want to be world renowned. And they intentionally uh, aimed really high. Here, it's a little bit more difficult because if I want to build, you know, a building the size of the Burj Khalifa, there's going to be protests, there's going to be politicians, there's going to be a lot of opposition to it. We just have a freer society where people have the opportunity to, you know, have their voices heard. And, you know, whether they have a dollar in it or not, uh, they still have the opportunity to, you know, opine on it. And sometimes consensus or opposition is built around a project and just creates a lot more difficulty. So are you looking to develop anything overseas? Yes, we are. That was going to be my next point, right? Like you're bringing that up. Like we're actually, um, uh, we're actually, I can't get too much into it, but we're actually uh, negotiating with the government to start building some transformative real estate in a Caribbean country. Ah. Makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. a lot of sense. So we we got over 3,000 units of housing in New York City. I wonder if there's a goal or if there's a number of housing opportunities that you want to create as a firm. You, you know, see, that's the thing, right? The the beautiful thing about, see, I'm a, uh, I love sports and I love competition, right? And what goes with that is a scoreboard. For me, the scoreboard is how many units we own. So we'd like to have 50,000. How many units do you own now? Uh, about a little over five, right? So we have some in other areas of the country, but, you know, we want to have, 50,000 units. And so a lot of work to do. Yeah. So when you watch the scoreboard, there's obviously somebody else that's up there on the board, not just you. That's right. So who who are the people that you're looking at? Not as competitors, but as inspiration to say, we can this further to go. I mean, like the company that when we, when I formed this company, um, I always thought about Related, right? Related is a company owned by Stephen Ross, who owns the Miami Dolphins, right? Uh, But they were primarily an affordable housing developer for decades. And the AOL Time Warner Center is kind of like, you know, they, they, when they did that, they flipped the switch and started doing these, you know, mega 
huge projects that are more like that placemaking idea I talked about. You know, they have Hudson Yards, they have other projects around, you know, other areas of the country, but, um, but they still do affordable housing too, mm. right? So you can have a, a model where you can do uh, projects like, you know, Time Warner Center or Hudson Yards, but still do affordable housing. That's what we're going to continue to do. But we're going to try to do it in more scalable projects where we could deploy more capital and create larger assets with the same effort. Well, Craig, it's been an honor. Very educational episode. Anything that you want to leave the people or let them know before we wrap? I mean, what I'd, I'd say is, listen, get involved in real estate. There's a $3 trillion economic opportunity for young people, uh, for, for minorities and women-owned companies. Whether you're developing, doing property management, uh, you're an electrician, a carpenter, an accountant, uh, an architect, you name it. I mean, it's a great industry. And once you're involved, it leads to more and more opportunities. So let's not miss out on this, on this $3 trillion windfall that's about to happen. Yeah, that's something that Don People said at MSG where he said that, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for for investment into black business, yeah. like real estate developers, stuff like that, because uh get like less than 1.3% of funding. Yeah. Um, and that's like all minorities and women combined. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so imbalanced uh, imbalance that it needs to be addressed. Yeah. Well, best of luck for you. If you guys need anything from us, you need us to put EYO headquarters in the affirmation. <laughs> uh, just let us know. That's, that's, let us know. That's man. that's easy. You know, we can fill yeah. the, the the theaters up at home if you need. Yeah. Uh, whatever. Whatever. Listen, you need when we us. open up, man, we want you guys to come up there and see the place, and you know, oh, for sure, have all the access you want to it. For sure. For sure. Yeah. We'll see you in Atlanta again too. Oh, Atlanta. Oh, yeah. That's you like know, that's like our second home. So that's what I said when you were saying you, you're pretty big in Atlanta. We know we're, we're pretty big out there too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we know exactly what you're talking about. The Microsoft Center. We uh, it's, it's that's right by OTE. Right. Where we actually uh sat down did an interview with. So a lot of development is happening out right. there. So that's encouraging. I'm sure people that are there hearing this are like, all right. We need right. to stay here and make sure that we, we plant our seeds here now. Absolutely. Is Atlanta a place where you think black people should focus all of their energy on? Not like every single person should come to Atlanta, but it's like, all right, it's beneficial to have a central hub. And Atlanta obviously has stood out as the mecca for black culture mm-hmm. in business, in music, and a variety of different things for the last 20 years. So... Like when we do Invest Fest, it's in Atlanta. You guys are building in Atlanta. Do you think that that's something where it's like, all right, we should really focus on Atlanta? Um, yes, but Atlanta's not the only market, right? So, I mean, D.C. is a great market. Um, the, the fundamental principle for real estate is buy low, sell high. Atlanta is like in motion, bro. I mean, it's like it's ascending quickly. But there's other markets where... Charlotte? yes. Absolutely, Charlotte. Um, you know, uh, stuff in the in, in the Midwest. I mean, like look at areas in and around Phoenix. And you just have the 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 equation works in almost every municipality. You shut, let me ask you a question, right? Here's how I answer that question: If you could buy real estate in anywhere in the country at what it cost 15 years ago, if you could do that today. Would you do it? Yeah. Then why wouldn't you do it now? So 15 years from now, you can say, look what I did. Well, yeah, the real estate, I'm, I'm just saying, because you always hear about Black Wall Street, right? Yeah. You always say, but Black Wall Street was more than just Tulsa, Oklahoma, it was a variety of different places. Yeah. So when I look at Atlanta, I look at it from a from a 
opportunity of investing, but then entrepreneurship as well. It's the only place in America that I've ever seen where when we, most of the businesses that we patronize, or at least half of them are owned by black people. Mm -hmm. I've never seen that anywhere else. Yeah. Well, you have, I mean, right. For like Maryland, maybe some areas in Maryland. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but there's been a historical um, lack of access to capital and economic opportunity for us, right? Oh, for sure. In our community. And that's why that happens. But the entrepreneurial spirit is strong. And look, you know, there's a, it's, it's not like what we do in our culture is invaluable because everybody's monetizing it, mm -hmm. right? But, so, but if we have access to the capital, we can monetize it for ourselves. I mean, like hip hop is a perfect example. We have, a, you know, a lot of artists and a lot of black folks doing well. There's a lot of people who aren't black who did really well in hip hop because they had capital to begin with. So you're saying just build other Atlantis. Mm. Yeah. Don't just depend on one city. Right. Yeah. Make other cities. The, the equation works this and it, it works and you know, like there's a thing about a place like Overtown in Miami. In Miami, yeah. Right. I mean, like, look at that. I mean, yeah. like it's that's that's fire. Yeah. Ten years from now, you got y'all be at Art Basel, right? So yeah. yeah, you know, just ten years from now, look at what Overtown's gonna look completely different. I feel like Detroit has some of those characteristics too. Detroit too, another right? place, same thing, exactly. Yeah, but there, but it, you know, um, it comes. You know, you, we focus on it, and um, you know, we are in the urban environment. Man. Like we we kind of shape the urban environment, our culture, right? And there's a reason why folks, you know, like you know, when I was growing up, there was uh, music that people listened to is all different. There was ACDC, there was, you know, uh, Guns N' Roses, there was Run DMC. But now everybody is on that urban hip hop stuff. Dressed the same, use the same language, listen to the same music. If we can continue to um, evolve this culture, but put ourselves in a position where we have access to capital so we can monetize what's being involved, that's the rubric, man. That's what we want to do. Not only with, and particularly, when you're talking about um, developing new hotspots and the real estate that functions around that. Mm. Well, 80s. You, UConn yeah. grad? Yeah. UConn, okay. I don't know if you watched that game the other night. Uh, yo. Who would they play? Uh, we handled Iowa State, like, yeah. you know. Well, they, they're top 10 now. The Huskies, yeah, they're back, back, hey, we back in Number eight in the country. They fell off for a while. Yeah, I feel a, I feel a national championship coming right now. Oh, yeah. You never know. They, you yeah, never they, had, know. they had a rough period for Yeah, I mean, listen, years. we so, I mean, we didn't win. That's, we, the last championship was in 2013, you know. Yeah. But that's a that's pretty good. Yeah. 2013? No, I'm just saying, UConn was always, you know, top 15 at least. Yeah. Kevin Alley, he won, I think, his first year, and then they... He, started, he won his started, first year. He yeah, He won his first year. He right. won his first year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was with uh, Shabazz. Yeah. Yeah. Shabazz but I mean, Napier. even, like, if you look in the 80s, obviously, at that time, UConn right. wasn't... Like, oh, a, UConn was amazing, man. It was a great, great school. When Jen Calhoun got there. Yeah. But prior to that... Yeah. Yeah, well, Calhoun took the program yeah. to Heights, and then you know they just you know were phenomenal for a long time. Yeah, the rip, rip on the national championship. Yeah, who's the who's the greatest player from UConn history? Ray Allen. That's easy. It's not easy. It's not Ray easy. Allen. It's gotta be. It's Ray Allen. Not, it's Ray Allen because he played. We played four years, right? Three. Three years. Yeah. No, but look okay. what he did in the NBA. I mean, well, I'm talking about just. Oh, you talking about at UConn career. playing at UConn? Kimber Walker is the greatest. Oh, oh, okay. He's yeah. the greatest player. Because he, he had the greatest performance. Uh, ben Gordon was nasty, too. Ben, ben Gordon whoa, 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 whoa. I, I, I beg to differ. If we're going to talk about basketball player, is Diana, Diana Taurasi not the best player from UConn? <laughs> okay. Point. All right. Men's. Men's okay. player. Point. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Men's player. Okay. But he's had his run, that run, in the NCAA tournament. That was the greatest 
is the year. best run I've that ever That backcourt was phenomenal. Yeah. That but if you crazy. if you take Kemba's freshman year, sophomore year, mm-hmm. you might not say the same. But you, if you take that third, that junior year when he won a chip, yeah. But Ray Allen consistently, yeah. Even Allen. even Rip, yeah. Like his career was ridiculous, and he wanted what he ended it with a chip. That's right. Yeah, y'all got four chips. Like most schools don't have four chips. I know. I know. I'm very very proud. Very proud. Of you. Very proud. <laughs> Columbia grad as well. That's right. But you know, I, I bleed blue either way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a pleasure having you. Gentlemen, thank, thank you, you so for much. joining us it. and I uh, look forward to connecting more in the future. All right. Love it. Thank you so much, man. All right. Thank you guys for rocking with us. We'll see you next week. Peace. Peace. My graduates from my school being Forbes. Backdrop. Backdrop. <laughs> a mic drop. Backdrop. Backdrop. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hopefully, this is the last time you hear this ad. With Chime Checking Account, features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab an extra latte. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals24. That's chime.com goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA, members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details.